Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today with two very special guests, Winter Mead, uh, an LP formerly of Sapphire, and David Booth, uh, CEO of OnDeck, as well as formerly AngelList, Carta, and CoinList. David and Winter, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Eric. Thanks, Eric. Good to be here. Awesome. Excited to dive into a lot of uh, uh, topics related to the LP ecosystem. Uh, and want to shout out Sapphire for coming up with OpenLP, Winter and, and Bezier and, and others. Thank you for, for doing that. Thanks. Yeah. Big shout out to VSC as well on that. Totally. So, uh, Winter, why don't we just sort of zoom out a little bit? What are some ways in which you've seen the LP ecosystem evolve and need to evolve since you entered uh, at Sapphire? Yeah, I think it's I think it's a great question. Um, there's definitely more activity in the early stage part of the market, both on the company formation and I think consequently uh, by on the uh, fund formation. Um, so. You know, where in the mid 2000s you had, you know, a couple dozen people focused on this part of the market. I now think you have literally hundreds, if not thousands, of managers and investors. Um, I think with the success of companies, um, you know, and the willingness to put capital back into the ecosystem from people that have been successful, I think that also generates, you know, a number of opportunities for. You know, people to get started themselves, to raise their own funds, to you know have different channels of, of capital to to go out and you know raise for their companies or raise for their funds. I think like I'll try to try to try to give a little history of sort of what I've seen. I've only been doing it for um, a little less than a decade, so don't have the full context of all of VC um, over the last half century. But you know. Where micro VC as we know it today started, it feels like it's really the the mid aughts, like the mid mid two thousands, when you know you started to have the old guard of venture capitalists realize that there's an opportunity here where companies were cheaper to create and that people could sort of go further on fewer dollars to prove out concepts, uh, company concepts. And so I think that led to um, you know when that was discovered, that led to a few people you know, starting up in this space and, you know, that success has grown over time. And, and those people are now, you know, well known as the the successful micro VC funds. I think, you know, success begets success. So you're seeing a lot more funds that have access or they are, uh, they have specialized knowledge um, or they have some, you know, unique skill set that they can use to, you know, get access to companies, uh, you know, come to market with, with not only their skills, but also like capital. Um, and that has led to there being, you know, hundreds and thousands, not hundreds and thousands, but hundreds, maybe even thousands of managers on the ground, running around, financing these companies. And that, I think, fundamentally changes the market. So it fundamentally changes the market for limited partners. And so I witnessed this when I was at Hall Capital, they were one of the early investors in the micro VC space um, and, and built out a concentrated portfolio of people they felt were, you know, attractive. And they've continued to focus on micro VCs as well, um, sort of the sub $100 million first or second time fund. 
they're willing to take that risk, but they, they take it fairly selectively and they do it usually based on, you know, building up that relationship over time. And so it's a multi-year process sometimes of getting to know people, building that level of trust, building that relationship before actually, you know, putting a check into a fund that really you're signing up for a 10 or 15 or even 20 year, maybe longer relationship with someone. So what's a year or two in that whole scheme of things? I don't think that necessarily has to change that, that need to really sort of drive the, drive the relationship forward and like build that relationship. I think what happens today though, is there's so many managers that it's hard to build unique relationships with, with a lot of them at the same time. So you run into a scale issue. I think it's also hard to track down information and to track down like actual sort of relevant reference information on people. So it becomes, it becomes like a scale issue. And in the past where, you know, there might've been dozens of managers you were looking at per year in the micro VC space. Now it's literally, you know, LPs, they're getting more and more known. Um, you're seeing hundreds of opportunities sort of cross your desk as an LP. I think, um, an interesting thing to think about is, you know, how do you then process that information at scale while at the same time building the relationships with the right folks? Yeah. And so what sort of gaps right now or, or, or problems or, or challenges do you think is facing the LP ecosystem? Where does it, where does it need to go? Where do you expect it to go? Yeah, I think one is just a pure processing power problem where how do you process all the data that's crossing your desk? And my fear is that sometimes that leads to decision paralysis where you're seeing the behavior of ignore versus assess. And I, I worry what that does to actual you know, venture capital. I think there are still enough very talented people out there that can you know, build a small fund on top of their personal networks, friends and family. But I think, you know, there's still a a leap of faith or there's still a gap between like where that friends and family ends and where you start after uh, where you have to start raising institutional capital. I mean, pulling on a few of the threads that Winter's been talking about. One is that good VCs who started in the the mid 2000s have been getting bigger um, and going later stage by the, the nature of their business models. They have to deploy more capital. So. Uh, at the same time, you have companies that are cheaper and cheaper to start. You've got a lot of different digital services available, better software stacks that you can get started nights and weekends, get a lot more traction without having to raise. Um, so it seems obvious that there's this gap and, and it's at the, the very earliest stages of, of investing seems underserved by the institutional LP model. And I, I come at this from a very different angle. My, my intru- introduction to uh, the world of the limited partner was through Angelist originally, um, building out the early operations stack in 2014 and 15, uh, working across a, a selection of 500 startups in 2015-16 eShares, now Carter, across 2016 and 17. Uh, very interesting to me to see a lot of the limitations of the current LP model I, I think you've, you've identified are uh, to do with the, the scalability of the, the human element. You do need to have the ability to have not just the the identification of of the the, the data that you, you'll be tracking, obviously portfolio returns, um, but the ability to have a relationship with the right numbers of of managers and to and to track them as they go through. So I think that's immensely important. Like, it's easier to scale the data problem where you're just like, okay, what's your track record, and I can benchmark that relative to industry benchmarks, right? Like, you're a 2016 vintage fund. 
okay, I know where you, I know where you stack rank your second quartile or your top 10%. That's easy. I think, you know, what David's touching on is really important and potentially more people should be thinking about it. I think on deck is thinking about it. Um, but how do you scale that human element, right? Like how do you accelerate the relationship building aspect to build trust, right? And how do you find the right people that are going to be good fiduciaries of capital and good, uh, in terms of complementarity to, to these early stage companies and be helpful to them and not necessarily be a distraction to them. You made a comment before you think that LPs have decision perilous. Uh, there is far more people now, uh, who they have to you know, track and have to understand and have to have relationships with. Well, that's that's not a new problem. I mean, VCs have had decision perilous uh, for as long as there have been more startups than than money to fund them with, which is possibly forever. Um, the, the the VC has to uh, develop a mechanism to be able to filter, but also has developed a financial you know, business model that can benefit from that. As anyone listening to this would know, there's, um, you can have one outlier company in your venture capital portfolio of, say, 30 or 50 or 100 companies, however it might be, and that one venture capital return can return the fund. It's interesting for me to think about within the limited partner business model, uh, there isn't necessarily the opportunity for outlier returns today. Even if you back an exceptional fund manager, maybe they return three or four or ten times their fund. How does that change the portfolio construction for you as an LP? You, you can't think about it as such a, a hits-driven business reliant upon one exceptional return. Every one of them has to be a more consistent return. Does well, that think, make sense? I think the way you think about it, or at least you know, I can speak from my experience, uh, and this is both true from you know, when I was at Hall Capital as well as Sapphire Ventures, is you take a look-through perspective. So you would look at the manager and you would assess the manager, you would assess the GP or the venture capitalist and say, you know, yes, they're very, they're a very good investor, right? They're very good at access. They're very good at selection. Potentially they're also good at value add. But then like you, you have an, another issue where I think it's more, more structural where like, uh, as an, as an LP, you don't necessarily, even if you identify like those who are good at access and selection and, and value add, you you sort of pick them once and you have your you have your portfolio and then there's a thing about you know you don't want to be too diversified because then you just sort of blend the the, the 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 belief would be you blend into the market return and everyone's trying to outperform the market so if you invest in too many funds then you're too diversified and you basically have a reversion to the mean in terms of returns and so if you're taking a look through portfolio perspective what you're trying to do is still remain somewhat concentrated still choose the people that have good access selection and value add that are going to hopefully be in the right networks and choose the right companies and then say like you know if you were to look at that list of companies from your full full portfolio you like the large majority of of the fund of funds return or the fund portfolio return is going to be driven by those underlying companies right so you're still making that decision on like who has the special sauce that is going to get access to these great companies. And you try to build a portfolio of those people. And more and more, I think what's happening is those people that traditionally have had the persistent performance, the, you know, top tier, uh, you know, big fund, uh, well-known VCs that, that, that we all know and love, like they're, they're raising more capital and they're basically taking allocation 
that potentially could go to new managers. So it becomes a structural issue. And they're basically just taking those dollars in-house. And so they have the, like, the operating budgets then to hire additional investors, additional people. They have the operating budget to build out additional value-added services. And it takes capital away from uh, what otherwise would be going into emerging managers, and it puts them into you know, the same group of concentrated VCs. So it, it leads to, you know, I think, the right uh, under, underwriting mechanism to start with institutional LPs. They pick good people, but then as those people get better, they command more and more of those institutional dollars. So then where do the new dollars come from? Or to your point, like, what is the structure that needs to be put in place in the market that enables this next generation of GPs and gives them a chance? There's uh, a, a lot of parallels you can draw, and I'll continue to do so, I think, between the VC company and the, and the LP-GP relationships. And, and another one that perhaps builds on what you're saying here is for, for a long time, many of the best new VC firms were being formed by experienced VCs spinning out of existing VC firms. Uh, but there's also been an influx of, of operator VCs and new people, and, and there's actually uh, in, institutional structures that will help those people get their starts. There's scout programs, for example, that Eric's had you know, spoken about on the podcast before. Village Global is leading. Yep, Village is, 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 a, is like one of the best examples right here. Um, I think it's a great. I think it's a great uh, process for building network leaders and finding nodes in a network that are very talented people that are going to like be in front of talent early, right? And be able to like put checks into like high risk investments. Like I think it's a very, it's like a really great model to like be a solution to uh, the structural issue. And, and if and if scout programs are a great way of, of bringing new managers up the curve and helping them institu- institutionalize themselves, then do you think there's a space for an equivalent for new GPs or new, new LPs, say? Um, scout LPs? Scout LPs. Uh, can you have a... Uh, a structured program, maybe it looks a little bit like a, a spearhead or like first rounds angel track or like villages network leader program where you can really give a, and, and build a relationship with a group of, of future, future managers in order to, to really almost stake some of your reputation to those managers and you know, watch them as they grow. Yeah. Again, like I think you, you've given three examples. I mean, those, those examples will come up over and over again, right? I think the market is bigger than just three of those staking mechanisms, right, to get uh, the next generation of GPs off the ground. I mean, if you buy in, I guess you have to buy into the meta thesis that, you know, technology is becoming more and more prevalent in more and more industries in greater and wider geographies. And if you buy into that, then you're probably also uh, may buy into the meta thesis that, you're going to have different emerging technologies with different specializations and different skill sets needed to really like either work within that technology or build those types of companies. And then, you know, who tracks all of that talent, right? And how do you get up to speed very, very quickly? And so I think bigger funds love those programs if they can interface with the right person that understands what's going on because the market intelligence you get from that stage of the market is basically what they're going to be investing in in like two to five years, right? So there's complementarity with the people that are raising the institutional dollars now and those that are, again, taking on the venture capital risk and staking these next generation of companies, these new emerging technology platforms. That's the way I, I see it right now. And so I think, yeah, Spearhead is doing it. Village Global is doing it. 
uh, first rounds, uh, giving a lot back to the community. There are some other folks as well that are part of that old guard of micro VC that have raised a little bit more capital now that are giving their time and their knowledge and their input back into the community and into the ecosystem. And they're being very helpful to these emerging GPs. And, and it becomes increasingly important, yeah, to think again, like, sure, these are these programs, but then what is that uh, transition between you're a great network leader or you're a great, uh, you know, person that's putting together, um, you know, multiple syndicates and you, and you can be identified as a great investor. How do you go from being that, you know, great investor to institutionalizing yourself? How do you know you have the right infrastructure in place? How do you know you have the right backend operations? How do you know you can actually create a system where like you don't have to really worry about it and you can focus more on like helping the companies and investing in the companies, finding the next great company, right? And I think, the people that maybe take that mentality, um, you know, right now I'm, I'm, I'm running operator. Like that's that, those are the people I'm trying to align with more long-term oriented who really like care for the companies want to find their next great deal and care about like focusing on that and less care about some of the, they have to care about it, but less want to focus on some of those ancillary services or backend operations or other things that, there are great third-party service providers you should just be plugged into and you can sort of enable these funds so that they can focus more time on building value and building companies and less time on the other stuff. Very much the the direction that Angelists are going, um, that Carter are more and more going is, you know, it's the venture capital fund in a box off the shelf, none of the back office. Uh, You turn up as a manager, you push a button and start accepting LP checks. And I think it's uh, it's, it's been quite exciting for me to to really track this trajectory over time of, in all aspects of how does the re- reduced friction of of an activity uh, change the 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 outcomes and actually the externalities of that, that activity, and um, this is one of the, the most obvious ones. Um, it's almost like in the mid two thousands and AWS launches and lowers the cost of starting startups again. It's like in this case, Angelus Thunstacks launches and lowers the cost of becoming a VC. Well, that reduces the barrier. Anyone can be a VC on the side, so. How does the the institution you know respond to that to stay competitive? Um, and I think a lot of the the work that OpenLP has been doing to to almost shift the the, the value added VC mantra back up to the LP stack, becoming a value added LP, and helping your GPs to really get into the business and to upskill and to add value for their their own portfolio companies. A lot of interesting dynamics to explore. Yeah, I, th- I think. Um what you have is venture capital firms that would be considered established are giving their time to emerging VCs. And sometimes they're giving their personal capital. Mike Maple's example, Mark Andreessen example, there's a bunch of examples. Yeah, there's, there's a bunch of examples. And when those early stage emerging managers have that stamp of approval, that helps with their own fundraising there was a, a tweet I think Eric sent a week or two ago, which was, um, it's never been easier to raise a micro VC fund pitching downstream venture firms. And in many <laughs> cases, that's a symptom of, uh, but also an opportunity you know, arising from this current uh, ecosystem where those VC firms, as we've said, are getting bigger and bigger. Uh, and those the managers of those VC firms, who've in many cases got their start by investing at the very earliest stages. But I think it might also come down to like a point of conviction and it's t- sort of, you know, two, two-headed dragon here where the first part is like conviction from early stage investors where they get really excited about an idea. They can see the ducks or the stars aligning and they can say like, wow, if everything goes right here, this is going to be an awesome company. Yeah. And they're willing to sort of take that 
risk and put that risk capital into the ground into that company. And the second part is on, again, having conviction in the actual GP, like in the actual venture capitalist that's financing that high-risk company to start. And I think, yeah, you have a few people, it mainly seems like they're in the valley, that, that are still willing to take risk and say, I believe in this person enough, or I'm going to invest my personal dollars and give them my stamp of approval. And I think there aren't too many funds that do that, right? Like if you, if you claim there's thousands in the market that are out there raising or looking to raise, uh, that's definitely a, a big sub, like I would say a small subset of them, I should say, uh, that are actually getting that stamp of approval. But those are the people right now, I think, that are enabling this next generation. So they are setting up to be complementary to these early stage firms. But again, like what's the bridge between that early stage firm and the institutional capital, I still think that hasn't been solved. And why, why hasn't it been solved? Or what would solve it? Having, having an institution that's willing to take higher conviction bets, right. having a structure that enables more funds, and whether, whether it's a spearhead type model, right, where it's saying, hey, we have your back end solved. Yeah. Let us, uh, all you need to do is focus on like your next great investment. Having more of that, or maybe, maybe it's a marketing issue, just making that more aware to emerging GPs. Like I don't have to focus on all this other management stuff. I can focus on my next investment. I think that that's important, right? It's shifting people's skill sets and core competencies to investing in great companies and building great companies uh, from the investor perspective and less on like the other stuff that's just less important for value creation. Right. And uh, why don't you think institutions are willing to take that risk? Is it because of who their investors are? Or like, because that's off, yeah. So I think- uh, we, we mentioned it earlier. I think one of the reasons is the the structural challenges. So their own funds are raising uh, additional dollars, right? Putting more AUM under their their own roofs. And so what that leads to is, you know, you were a five million dollar commitment in the last fund, and you know you have to step up in commensurately with the next funds. So your ten million dollar commitment that five million dollar delta that would have gone into another GP is going to an existing GP. So it's, it's definitely structural. I think it's also um, from an institutional investor's perspective, it's also a NAV issue, like a net asset value. So venture has done very well over the last decade. And that's led to when people think about portfolio management instead of, you know, I'm going to do 15% of my portfolio into venture capital and, you know, venture crushes it. And then it turns into like 25% of the value of your portfolio. Well, if you're originally thinking and you sort of get a buy-in from the organization as you're going to have 15% exposure and now, you, now you're sitting on 25%, you need to whittle that down before you're willing to take on more, yeah. more exposure. So it seems counterintuitive, like, well, if this right. is the best performing part of it, but a lot of it, a lot of it's markups and not necessarily realized value. Yeah. And so there's sort of a thinking of, okay, I need to think about cash flows. I need to be right. smart about that. And I also need to think about like, what is my expectation that all of these companies are actually going to return the dollars at which they're marked? And so it's a little bit academic, but I think that's a big part of the equation that leads to institutions being a little bit more hesitant in this market environment. That could change, but I think um, you're sort of seeing that as an issue. It may sometimes come down to just the decision paralysis where venture is very much a human capital game where you need to build that relationship and that level of trust in order to build conviction, right? You can see great numbers and I see it a lot, right? Like uh, 
I see great numbers, but I still want to meet the person. I yeah. still want to talk to them. And when all of a sudden it goes from, again, when you have a scale issue and it goes from dozens of people to hundreds, like how do you build the right relationships and therefore the right conviction yeah. in these managers? I think what where people are in this market environment is like, let me just wait and see. Um, and let me try to build over a longer term cadence. And maybe that's the right solution is being patient, being conservative, being thoughtful in terms of deploying capital into these emerging managers. But at the same time, it's if you have a market that's the fastest growing market within private markets, yeah. how do you how do you start thinking about it differently? And maybe there's maybe there's a different solution than just, you know, sit on your hands and wait. While you're thinking about portfolio construction, there's an, an interesting idea that I, I think is becoming more commonplace that the diversification across the portfolio is actually shifting from the GP level in itself, where maybe five or 10 years ago, a single GP would be investing in a lot of different sectors. It might be enterprise, it might be consumer, into a world where the portfolio diversification construction happens at the LP level, and that LP instead looks to engage with a specialist VC, you know, a micro fund that's the very best fund doing SaaS deals, the very best fund doing biotech deals, the very best fund doing you know, consumer deals. And I think a lot of the, the new brands in venture are just that. Um, you know, longevity fund and bio and longevity, there's shrug capital and consumer. Um, how, how do you think about that from an LP perspective? Would you be more inclined to build a portfolio with specialists instead of having you know, very proven generalists and operators. And, and do you look at things top down? Like, hey, we need exposure in biotech. Do you need exposure in consumer or more bottoms up? It's all the manager. Yeah. So it's a really, really great question. I think if you could operate in a vacuum or if you're investing a de novo portfolio where you haven't actually allocated dollars into venture yet, it's a very different answer. I think the way I've seen it happen is you have an existing portfolio and the question you're asking yourself is what is different that's out there that I can add to the portfolio or what is additive to the portfolio that provides me with an additional exposure or additional diversification. And so that's typically the question that most, uh, most, in, most LPs would be asking themselves is what does this offer in addition to everything else I have in the portfolio? And therefore, I think the specialized fund strategies are the most interesting because you're like, I understand your special sauce, like your superpower. Like I understand why you're different and why you can maintain that core competency because no one else has developed like AI to that capacity or no one else has uh, this much experience focused on, you know, building biotechnology as you have, right? And so you build the right team and align the right team and that becomes like a... Yeah, from a diversification perspective, an interesting fund to add to the portfolio. And so I think that's why you've seen that uh, rise uh, of, of those funds is because they become very clear to LPs what, uh, what level of diversification they're offering. Um, and that's easier to underwrite and easier to sell, I think, internally to investment committees versus someone that comes to market today and says, hey, I'm a good investor. I'm a generalist you know, are, are you willing to take that risk on, on this strategy? It kind of blends in with the hundreds of other funds that are out there. What's the data on emerging managers? How do they perform? And, and like, how do people, first-time funds perform versus second-time, third-time fund 
what, 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 what can we tell from the data? So it's a good question. And whoever's listening to this podcast, if uh, feel free to send in some additional data if, if we don't get it fully correct. But from what I've seen, like there's academic studies on first-time funds outperforming. And I know that one's a bit debatable depending on who you talk to, if it's a larger fund or a smaller fund. I think they have different opinions on this. I think you've seen, everyone's seen and read the Kaufman report, I'm assuming. Uh, if you haven't, it's a really interesting one from a few years back that basically brought to the foreground the discussion around fund size and what actually outperforms uh, from a fund size level. Um, and that brings up the next topic of discussion um, after fund size, which would be portfolio construction. And again, like how do you make outsized returns? Kind of what investors are looking for when they invest in venture capital, outsized investment returns. How do you do that at a multi-billion dollar fund size versus a uh, you know, multi-hundred or even like smaller sub-100 million dollar fund size. And there's a, a thread to pull on here as well, which is a very interesting one, I think, which is as that LP and you're looking at your exposure to a particular underlying portfolio company across maybe it's 20 managers, uh, how do you think about then assessing the individual portfolio company underlying those uh, those investments? And uh, may, maybe in some cases, I know at Sapphire you did and, and another fund of funds, um, you'll have a growth fund that can sort of sit and invest sometimes and follow on and, and pair with with your managers. Um, is there a, a, a sort of a change required here or, or perhaps a, a new mo- model for a, a follow-on fund that can move into the earlier stage? Potentially. It's a good good question. I think I need to think a little bit more about it. I mean, the way to answer your question about assessing the underlying companies, I do think that's a skill set that needs to be had either under the roof of the LP or you need to have some team or some partnership in place that enables you to have an opinion on those companies. The sophistication of the opinion can be different, right? Like if you're operating at at an LP that has an internal team that does direct investments, that can be very helpful to have like a strong opinion on the trajectory of the company versus, you know, if you've only attended maybe the annual meeting every year, you'll have an opinion on the company, but you won't fully understand it, how it's operating, how it's doing. Like you won't understand the nuances of the business. You'll have an opinion on it, but it won't be like a super strong opinion. I think that affects also how co-investments would happen with the LP. Like if you're tracking a company over time, you get to know the company over time. Like it's easier to make a co-investment as an LP than if you just see something for the first time and you try to get someone up to speed over, you know, two to four weeks, that's, that's a bit harder. So I think, I think you're right. Maybe it sits as a separate fund. I think there's a lot of people focused on this area of the market right now. So, I mean, I, I think it comes to market, but I don't know if it's necessarily different than the people that are looking to do early stage investments right now. And thinking of new uh, types of funds, as we walked in here, someone made the comment, um, which I thought was quite interesting, that uh, 80% of all Series A financings are now for companies that are post-revenue. And the reason that stood out to me was um, as companies are post-revenue, they start to be more fundable by other means, debt or or, uh, similar instruments. 
Um, and obviously equity, if you think about the pure cost of capital of raising money, equity is the most expensive. Um, sometimes it doesn't make sense. If you're a large corporation, you'll be more likely to issue debt. Have you thought at all about you know, what is the, the the role of an equity-like alternative? I, I know in just a sort of lay small context, there's companies like ClearBank out there doing revenue-based financing for particular types of companies. There's uh, you know, emerging venture models, NDVC, Earnest Capital are two I can think of where they're almost like a repayable form of convertible equity. There seems to be a movement towards you know, almost a pushback towards aggressive uh, venture terms, some of the, the implications of having large large amounts of money flowing in from the, the soft banks of the world. I'm wondering if there's almost a perfect storm brewing here, opportunity for a new, a new asset class. Now, if that was the case, obviously you'd need to have a, a, a an investor who, who has the relationship directly with the company. You'd also have an opportunity for an LP who is going to be engaging with and building some institutional momentum around those managers. Wonder if you had any thoughts about that. <laughs> is this a podcast on science fiction? <laughs> what is this debt thing you talk about? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I think it's a great question, right? I think what you're doing is you're marrying the culture of the rest of the world uh, with the culture of Silicon Valley, right? Where the traditional model is I will buy equity and help scale your company uh, and we will co-own, I'll be a minority shareholder, but we'll co-own this asset as we scale. And you know, the easiest answer is probably every company is going to be a little bit different. Not all companies that are backed with VC dollars today need VC dollars. They don't necessarily need to sell their company, right? And so maybe some of the conversations should shift to how big of a valuation can we get to avoid dilution? to you know, what's the right capital structure at this type of company to accelerate our growth and not necessarily give away all of our equity. I mean, I think probably some of the more thoughtful entrepreneurs out there do ask that question a lot where they say, you know, are there other means? And a lot of people do take you know, venture debt and other forms of non-equity financing to help accelerate their, their growth. I think it probably should happen more than it does. Debt could be a really interesting alternative, you know, for science funds. Like they could more focus on grants and try to get more non-dilutive financing to help uh, accelerate some of these projects. I think international could be an opportunity here as well. I mean, speaking as someone who's been a venture capitalist in the smallest VC market in the world, perhaps in New Zealand. Uh, being very much exposed to it in the United Kingdom in both of those markets and certainly beyond um, the Silicon Valley VC model is somewhat blindly applied expecting that a billion dollar will be, will be seeded when the reality is there is actually substantial opportunities to build technology enabled businesses locally that may well become million dollar businesses you know, tens, hundreds of million dollar businesses but uh, many of those founders have fallen on the, the rocks of, of the, the expectations set by their you know, uh, you know the the glorified version of of the uh, the unicorn startup. So, so maybe the way to break up the market is you'd say there are VC backed companies which are going for those very large multi billion dollar outcomes. There are more companies that fit the bill of a private equity company, right? Where it's pretty obvious if you look at the growth rates and sort of their path to profitability 
and you dive into you know known concepts for evaluating a company like the unit economics, you can sort of say this company is more obvious. I don't have to take a technology risk bet. I don't have to take a product risk bet. I'm taking some market expansion risk here, but I, I think like this feels more like private equity risk than venture risk. Is there a third category, right? Like is there a third type of company where dollars should be going in to people that want to invest into private markets, that want to invest into fast growing companies, but maybe maybe the outcome isn't always a billion dollars plus at the end of the day. Maybe you get smaller outcomes or you're able to assess that and then is it equity or is it some other type of part of the capital structure that you that you offer financing to for the company. Right. And in order to create that kind of company and to, to fund that kind of company, I, I think you do need to be able to at least talk to the the opportunity for liquidity from those types of companies because um, perhaps you know the acquisition or the IPO is the traditional route to, to, to exit is, is a little bit outdated. And this is something that I, I really got excited about in, in, in you know, seeking out eShares originally and joining and the, the business that Carter are building today is this sort of concept of a third type of company. It's uh, literally the you know, the binary ends of the public and private market. Well, it shouldn't be that. It should be a private company that has opportunity for structured liquidity on a regular basis. Maybe that's a quarterly, maybe that's a monthly or a weekly trading window. Now, you can see a sort of a, a future here where, where perhaps a, a more liquid secondaries ecosystem would be valuable to the investor. But because this is a podcast about LPs, I thought something interesting to explore would be what is a venture secondary look like because a venture capital fund is uh, for anyone not aware usually subject to an eight or a ten year lifetime um, and as you know has become more aware companies take a long time to mature you know um, the the current crop of companies going public were, were founded in the large part between 12 and 20 years ago um, which means that any venture venture capital investor in those either will have had to liquidate their their holdings early They'll distribute the equity back out to their LPs directly, both of which are suboptimal outcomes. They'll either be leaving money on the table by liquidating early, they'll be leaving carry dollars on the table by distributing equity. Um, do you have, from your perspective, when when you as an institutional LP would invest in a classic you know, plain vanilla Series A fund on a 10-year lifetime and, and it would approach the end of that, what does that conversation look like with you and a, and a manager? Yeah, so... Typically, there's probably a few extensions. The first few extensions are discretionary by the manager, and then the additional extensions of the fund life happen as conversations with the stakeholders as well as the GP. It's a really thought-provoking idea. I don't think there's great solutions in the market that I've seen that happen at scale. Like I have seen a number of public examples where you either have a portfolio of funds that you sell to someone else that's willing to take on that portfolio. Again, many times on a look-through basis, like what are the underlying companies in that portfolio of funds? They will evaluate those companies and then they'll you know, buy on that portfolio of companies and portfolio of funds. So I've seen that happen quite a bit. Um, you've also seen like NEA be innovative recently in this space where they spun out a, a part of their prior fund um, into in, into a new entity. I think what you're getting at, and I think based on your experience, David, is the the marketplace concept, right? Like how do you find the right buyer and how do you set the right 
and, and the right seller and how do you set the right price for these transactions? Because I think a lot of it comes down to people's opinion, especially within a venture portfolio of, sure, this is marked at that, but is it really worth that? And if so, how can we get both get comfortable that you feel like you're selling at the right price? I feel like I'm buying at the right price. And I think that's harder to do if it's harder to find a market comp or if it's harder to like look at the actual operating data of a company. And that requires probably a marketplace where someone's willing to take on that risk onto their balance sheet and say, hey, these are venture risk companies. I'm willing to pay you know, whatever the discount is or just pay NAV and I'm seeing the upside here. There's, uh, there's another layer of complexity to add on to even that, I think, which is the, uh, the asymmetry of information and the signaling risk. If, if you see a secondary interest in something selling on a private market, when, you know, in the public market, obviously there's a regulatory layer that protects the investor in a private market. It's whatever information you have is yours to make a decision and it's, and it's your decision to do so. So, um, if you see a secondary interest selling below the cost price, what is the signal of the quality of that asset? Why is the investor trying to sell? And I think actually that to me is why the first thing you mentioned was was perhaps most interesting is what are the opportunities for liquidity for bundles of assets? Um, the, the best example I've witnessed was um, in 2017, a, a, a firm in London called Draper Esprit purchased the entire first and second funds of Seedcamp. Yeah, that was really interesting. Right. And Draper Esprit, I mean, that's interesting for two reasons. One is that that was a very interesting basket of assets, included a, a fairly large stake in TransferWise and some other assets. What's your DPI? Distributed to paid-in capital. Okay. <laughs> well, it's a well, key metric for realizations. Amazing. Okay. Uh, <laughs> they have uh, a really good answer to that now. They <laughs> do. A bit. Yeah, it's fun um, one and fun two. Fully DPI'd. <laughs> so, so, so creating opportunities for... Uh, for for managers to be fully DPI'd. I mean, that sounds like a hashtag waiting to be made. Where right do I there. sign for fund three? Yeah, <laughs> totally. um, the other really interesting thing, I, I, I mean, I, I'm personally fascinated and spending a lot of time digging into is that Draper Esprit itself is actually a venture capital trust, uh, which many people aren't familiar with here, but it's a publicly traded venture capital fund uh, listed on the London Stock Exchange. There's hundreds of them, um, happens to be one of the bigger ones. Uh, and with the Venture Capital Trust, you can run a primary offering, uh, which is the equivalent of a, of a fundraise, uh, usually subject to a lockup. It may be a three or a four-year lockup, uh, after which an investor in that is able to list, usually in a restricted trading window, you know, their, a portion, maybe 5-10% of their holdings for the market to purchase. And meanwhile, the same manager who's you know, marking their, their investments appropriate to market will hopefully be proving returns and can go out and raise a secondary primary or a third primary issuance. Um, one thing I've really wondered since uh, getting more immersed in the US market is why are we still locked into the traditional 10-year fund cycle? Uh, Great question. <laughs> what are the alternatives and what can we do about them? What are the alternatives, right? I think it goes back to what's the right marketplace? Is it a private marketplace? Is it a public marketplace to generate that liquidity, especially on the secondary side? Uh, I think you bring up a really good point about the term life, right? Again, I've only been doing this for uh, under a decade, but usually you don't see many funds close up shop, right, or end. They usually, like, you get to 10 years and it's like, I still have assets in my portfolio, can we extend the fund life so I can manage those out, right? And maybe they take away the fees, which is fine. But realistically, like what is a way to yeah, generate liquidity for those particular assets? And I guess it depends on your strategy too. Like some, some companies or some strategies are going to generate liquidity faster 
some are not. And so if basically the de facto structure is a 10-year life, like is that right for all investors? Because some people don't want to take on reinvestment risk, right? And you run into this more and more, like as an LP, if you're investing into you know, seed and series A, you're signing up for a very long journey with the company, right? And if you look at how long it takes for these companies to generate liquidity, especially if they're running to IPO, and a lot of these bigger multi-billion dollar companies have to go to IPO, that's going to be, you know, a decade just to get there. So if you have a, you know, five-year investment period, and then you have a 10-year fund life, that's not enough time based on sheer math to get to the liquidity and the exits you need. So maybe some investors would be willing to sign up for uh, a longer term structure, or there is another structure in place, or there's a marketplace that can be enabled that would allow people to, you know, trade secondaries, and therefore, you know, switch in and out of positions. The availability of capital is quite interesting to, to think about when um, over the last year, I've, I've uh, been involved in spinning up a new fund focused on uh, very early stage uh, companies in the crypto space in particular. And in the process of doing so, uh, we spent a lot of time thinking about what the best structures and focuses would be. Uh, started out at the very you know, hedge fund-like end of the spectrum where it might be a, a liquid fund that has a very short-term lockup. And then you know, we've been right back down the other end of the spectrum where it's a, um, a, a closed-end fund with a, with a set lifetime and wound up somewhere in the middle, which I think is quite a unique uh, space to be in. Um, really, you know, designed for a new asset class, but the the profiles, and this is the, the the punchline, I think, the profiles of the investors that you can pitch at each end of the spectrum and the amount of capital available for those investments. If you're pitching a short-term lockup uh, liquid fund, there is actually a lot more capital in the market for that. Uh, that's, I mean, that's just a hedge fund. If you're pitching a, li- a long lifetime ten-year uh, lockup, then there is only a much smaller profile of investor, typically an institutional endowment or a very long-term uh, investor. Now, if you return to kind of one of the, the core theses for, the, for this podcast was this uh, change in the nature of technology today and the way that businesses and society is structured uh, is driving a, I mean, a change in the way that businesses and people work together. Um, what's the capital requirements of those? It means more money is going to be required to fund you know, thousands and thousands of, of startups over the over the next decades. Um, so to me, uh, having a conversation about how does the financing model have to change right down to the bottom of the stack uh, in order to enable that capital to flow through to the people who need it the most, the, the founders and entrepreneurs around the world, is possibly one of the most important ones to be having. Right. Yeah, I mean, I think there's ways of opening up additional distribution so more capital can access the space. But I think there should also be thoughtfulness around what is the risk of a company or an asset at any point in time of its evolution, right? If you're going to create a secondary market, how do you how do you sort of assign a risk to a series C company versus a series B company versus a pre-IPO company, right? And therefore, like, how do you price that risk uh, appropriately? I think that's important. The other thing that, especially if you're trying to bring institutional capital into the space, um, limited partners are going to be thinking about cash flow, right? Like a lot of them have operational budgets themselves. I right? think of a, a university. Like some of that endowment is going to funding the operations of the university. And so being able to have a good sense of the liquidity, which is harder in venture, 
having an opinion on it or being able to like provide more transparency or understanding uh, for the institutions can be can be important. So again, like if you're gonna if you just hold it in one portfolio, then it's like when it sells, it sells. But if you're gonna sell it to someone else, there should be some you know understanding there of you know what's what's the liquidity you're buying into or the illiquidity. Uh, we've been talking a little bit, Dave mentioned earlier about how the sort of VC founder relationship and how that's evolved. And I tweeted about this too, uh, might mimic how the GP LP relationship has evolved. And we've already seen some ways in which it has. I mean, the, the first way is uh, basically the power shifting from VCs to the founders. I mean, it's easier to start a company. Uh, there's, you know, much, much more people starting companies. Founders pick VCs rather than VCs picking founders. And I think, uh, and as a result, VCs, you know, moved from San Hill Road to San Francisco, became much more open, had to become founder friendly, value add. These are terms that are cliche today. There are parody, you know, Twitter VC accounts explain how they're cliche, but they were novel at the time. And we're starting to see similar things in LP ecosystem ready, hence open LP and, and what, what you guys have done at Sapphire. That's one way. The other way, um, we've noticed that there are some misalignment between founders and VCs. There's a, there is a lot of alignment, but there's some misalignment where, you know, VCs, uh, have a portfolio. Founders get, uh, one shot on goal. And, uh, you know, I sort of joke that everyone's trying to diversify on top of someone else's concentrated strategy. And so VCs want founders to go big or go home. You know, a $50 million exit, if it doesn't mean, it could be life changing for the founders, but if it doesn't move the needle, and sometimes even bigger, sometimes it's 500 million or something, it doesn't move the needle for the VC, then, um, you know, there's, there's misalignment there. And, uh, don't scout on the side, don't do, you know, don't get diversity. <laughs> Otherwise, you just go all in so I can diversify on top of you. And I wonder if that's similar in, in the VC LP ecosystem where, um, as a res- uh, where VCs are choosing these concentrated strategies, they might be better off in some ways for their own pockets, choosing these more diversified uh, portfolios, but LPs are already diversified, so, so they don't need that. I want to get into that. The third thing I'll mention, and then I'll re- respond, uh, pause for your reactions, is there's been sort of this um, sort of questioning in, in founder VC community of like, hey, what makes you even so good at this? Like, why can't I do this? Why can't I start a micro fund? And especially day zero, or at least like I know the founders better than you do. They're coming to me before they come to you, VC. Why can't I pick the companies better than you can? And so, you know, VCs are realizing p- parts of this. Uh, and so they give them scouts. Um, but we're starting to see, you know, micro funds directly. And um, VCs are really, you know, trying to prove their place at the table, prove that they're not just middlemen suits who talk to LPs better than, than the founders do. And that's why they have the money. And so, uh, you know, I, I would say that the power is being aligned with knowledge or the money is being better aligned with who's actually creating the value here. And I'm curious on the VC LP side, you know, is Michael Kim better at identifying emerging managers than Mike Maples or, or, you know, pick some top VC? Like what, what's, and Michael Kim, I, I'd say he's the best or one of the best emerging manager pickers, if not the best. What's their secret power, uh, superpower? Well, why can't VCs be the ones picking the other VCs? Hey, I identify, you know, they spend all the, all their time together, especially when, you know, when it's, when it's early stage. And is it just that they're not better at talking to the, 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 the people who back L, the funds who back LPs than, than LPs are. Or, anyways, those are some, you know, spicy topics for, for, for conversation. 
I mean, why aren't we all professional athletes, right? If we if we just put in the time, we could all play in Major League Baseball and the NBA. Right. Well, the NBA, you could sort of see, I could go on a court and I could see LeBron James is better than me. It's very explicit on day one, right? Day zero, who's better than who? Whereas VC, I mean, it's like you make one great pick and, you know, like is Chris Aka a better investor 10 years after, he, or 20 years after he did, well, obviously it's not 20, 10 after he did Twitter and Uber? I don't know. Like he was in better networks in 2009 than he is today. Um, yeah, he's learned a lot. He was a beginner back then. It's not, you have to admit, it's not as clear cut as in basketball. Someone's just clearly better. Whereas it's a lot of luck, a lot of luck, a lot of ne- uh, network. Um, Some can be luck. I think from the, from the LP's perspective, like you have to have a skill set to evaluate what you're investing in, right? Um, and understand and, and delineate between skill and luck. And yeah, if you have one hit, the, LP is going to ask, was that luck? Well, if you have five hits, the probability that it's luck goes down. And so I think that's, that's important. Just having, having an LP that, you know, maybe, maybe is scrutinizing from that perspective, right. And looking into the portfolio, understanding the patterns of investors over time. That's why track record is so important. And attribution is so important. LPs really spend a lot of time digging into what is the attribution of this person that I'm investing into? What did they actually do in terms of sourcing and due diligence and getting the board and doing governance to the company, helping add value? Like there's all these dimensions of attribution that the LP will dig into and understand. And that can lead to uh, having an opinion on whether they're a really good investor over time versus they just got lucky because they threw some dollars in the ground. I think one of the hard parts about attribution for early stage funds that I see is, yeah, you have people that had a windfall of capital. The good thing I like is that they put a lot of those dollars back into the ecosystem, right? So they're, they're giving back the ecosystem gave to them. They're giving back to the ecosystem, but then they can tell a story, right? They say like, Hey, I invested in like these three great companies. I'm ready to manage a fund. When again, like managing a fund is managing a fund. It's not just investing. It's not angel investing. It's a different skill set. And so maybe the solution is you provide sort of the the context around them so that they can continue to just do what they've seemed to be good at on the angel side, which is access and selection. Um, maybe that's the answer there. But I think you know, to answer just the Michael Kim thing is he's been doing this for you know over a decade now at the institutional level. His insight into what the right patterns are and who the people are that are raising capital and what the benchmark is. And so it comes down to, from my perspective, what is the bar? And if you, yeah, if if you go to one baseball game and it's a little league baseball game, you've never seen any other baseball game, that is the bar, right? But then let's say you go and you're in Pawtucket, Rhode Island, and you go to a triple A baseball game you're like, oh, these guys are pretty good. And then you just drive a little bit of ways go up to Boston, you're like, wow, these guys are amazing. Right. And so like the bar changes based and you've only like seen three, like you've seen the same game played over and over again, but like you have a better perspective. Right. I think the more precise analogy here is who's a better identifier of first baseman, other first baseman or general managers or something. Yeah. So I've got a pretty strong opinion, which I think is going to echo this, that I don't think it matters what we call the business. You could be a founder, you could be a GP, you could be an LP. I think, uh, over time and 
maybe it's a time scale here. Um, the complexities of all those businesses are going to be an abstracted way of running a fund or running a, a fund of funds or running a, a business. And ultimately, we're all in exactly the same business, which is talent identification. If you're an MBA coach, the same same kind of concept. So to me, the most important skill uh, that I, I, I sort of look for in, in people I like to work with and I'm trying to develop myself uh, and you'll see that reflected in what we're doing today with, with On Deck is literally the, the first place the best people look when they're thinking about what they'll start or join next. We're in the talent business, and I think uh, that's the, the, the real key to it. Right. That's the human capital plus the data, right? It's the classic example is Moneyball, where you have very skilled people that can choose other very skilled people. But at the same time, like you can augment it with capturing the right amount of data and sharing that and benchmarking that. So it is a combination of, I think, yeah, identifying the talent, but also understanding what that talent has done to be talented, as well as like identifying the right data, capturing the right data and being able to like assess across the industry and benchmark appropriately across the industry. Totally. Um, Did you have a comment on the diversification misalignment? I think there's clear misalignment with the current structure. That being where if you're thinking about the world in terms of talent pools and Eric, to your point, like if the person sitting next to you thinks they can do it just as well as you, then the people who have persistence of performance, like why shouldn't everyone go work for them? Like if they really are the best, why don't you just say those are the pools of talent in venture? And then the way the structure of venture capital funds are set up is, you know, you need to raise more capital to get a bigger budget to hire those people to sort of bring them in. Um, And so the misalignment there is, yeah, raise as much capital as quickly as possible, where the faster you put dollars out the door, the faster you can come back and raise capital. And what the LP loses out on is vintage diversification. They lose out on sort of that portfolio diversification where more of their dollars have to go into the GPs in which they're already invested in, they don't have an opportunity to necessarily like build out that pipeline or that farm team of companies or funds. Um, and that can be challenging, not in today's market, but in five or 10 years when they don't have those relationships, right, with those newer funds. So I do think there's some structural misalignment right now between LPs and, and GPs. I think in terms of the power structure, I think the VCs have more, like similar to how the companies and the founders probably have more power at this point in time with respect to the VCs. I'd say the VCs have more power, especially the good ones. Um, So there is a case here of the haves and the have-nots. The haves definitely have the power, and they can go to their LPs when they want and command those dollars from the LPs if it's going back within one year or going back within four years. So the structural misalignment in terms of the power misalignment is leading to this market level dynamic of concentration of capital in these bigger managers. Hmm. I wonder if there could be something where we're basically like scouts become one more level of abstraction higher where right now scouts exist, you know, VCs give money to other founders and angels to back companies. Could you imagine LPs, giving some money thinking, Hey, we're, we're too busy to run our emerging manager program. Like it's, you know, it's small dollars compared to what we need to be here. Mike Maples or other, and you're seeing all the angels that are coming up, starting these micro funds. Here's some, you be a scout for us at Sapphire or, or wherever and, you know, pick our emerging managers. 
Yes. <laughs> uh, no, I think it's a great yeah. idea. I think having the network of, I mean, the, the scout idea in general is a, is a reaction to a scale issue, yeah. right? Where if everyone that you need to finance is spinning out of the same three technology companies that are within a mile of Stanford, that's great. You have no scale issue. You walk down or bike down the street and you're at the place where you're going to be financing your next company. But all of a sudden you have the flattening of data in the world, greater level of transparency, more ecosystems popping up all over the world where there can be great talent and like great companies being built. How do you stay on track of all that? Especially where, you know, as a, the dynamics of a VC fund is if you invest in one company, you probably can't invest in that type of company again because you just run into conflict. Why don't founders go to LPs? Today, every founder starts a microphone. Maybe tomorrow, every founder starts a studio. Um, like, there just keeps keep being, seems to be like these middlemen. And maybe LPs and VCs, superpowers, just raising capital. They, they try to say it's not that. But, like, founders are the ones who build companies and need, and need money. Where- to put a, a counterpoint on this, um, not because I don't believe that it's, it's future or something yeah. very interesting here. Um, in 2017, there was this little idea called the ICO. Uh, where founders were going straight to people directly um, and that for the most part turned out to be a bad idea and I don't think it was anything to do with the technology stack I think that um, it's actually a pretty reasonable pretty efficient way to raise money by you know, selling um, provably scarce units of economic value on the internet uh, it was more around the incentive alignment of, of who is doing the curation of the deals and who has the incentive to actually report truthfully to to the, the public. So to me, it's um, it's been about this asymmetry of information in crowdfunding, which has been a fascinating thread to pull across. From my experience, Angelist uh, into Coinlist also had a quick spill at Republic, which is one of the largest uh, crowdfunding platforms, worked with Crowdcube in the UK, Snowball Effect back in New Zealand. Um, in, in all of those cases, um, the teams work very hard and work very well to identify good companies and to put the information on amount of information that can be communicated through, through a web page uh, is, on, is never going to be the 100% snapshot of everything there is to know about that company. And another dynamic is that the more information you put there, the higher the friction for the founder. And in a world where capital is, uh, is plentiful and good deals are scarce, the very best founders aren't going to stick around while this giant crowdfunding profile is built out. Not saying that you know lots of good companies haven't gone through, through crowdfunding, just as soon as you introduce any risk of adverse selection into a venture capital model, you risk really bad outcomes. And I think um, there is some truth to the fact that in crowdfunding, uh, some, not all, very good founders won't bother, uh, won't wait and won't do it. So one way we tried to solve this at AngelList was with incentive alignments and saying um, the crowd could never be expected to know enough about a particular deal or have the time to do the diligence on a particular investment nor could the founder be expected to put all this information out there. So what you do is you take somebody whose absolute speciality is to be the best person at having access to deals and, and picking deals, and you give them an economic alignment of incentives. You say, you're going to share in the carried interest, the carried interest being the share of profits of the returns these investors make. Um, and you see you know, Naval or someone like that running a syndicate, and you, you say, well, it doesn't really matter if there's this big extensive description of the company Naval is putting his money in and putting his staking his reputation to a founder and saying this is a founder I'm backing. 
then it's going to be better than the average company. Maybe I'll put my money at that one. Um, I think this, if you think about sort of disintermediating the current venture capital model, to me it's not about um, the middlemen being friction points. It's about the ways of communicating enough information to the source of capital, whatever that may be, and the ways of aligning the incentives throughout that 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 capital financing stack. Um, Thanks, guys. Yeah, my, my guests today have been Winter Mead and David Booth. David Winter, thank you so much for coming to the podcast. Thanks, Eric. Yeah, yeah. Thanks, David. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Please hit us up at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst. 